Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I am your host, Natalie Pearson. Launched in 2013 by Chinese President Xi Jinping, China's Belt and Road Initiative has manifested throughout Southeast Asia in the form of multi-billion dollar investments in transport infrastructure, industrial estates, and other forms of hard development. This push for trade and hard infrastructure has been accompanied by a surge in various soft power initiatives, including the use of religion as a cultural resource. To tell us more about the use of religion, in particular Buddhism, within the Belt and Road Initiative, I am joined by Dr. Gregory Raymond, a lecturer in the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, where he researches Southeast Asian politics and foreign relations. Greg is the author of Thai Military Power, A Culture of Strategic Accommodation, published by NIAS Press in 2018, and is also the lead author of the United States-Thai Alliance, History, Memory and Current Developments, published by Rutledge in 2021. His work has been published in journals including Contemporary Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia Research, and the Journal of Cold War Studies. He convenes the ASEAN Australia Defence Postgraduate Scholarship Program, the Global China Research Spoke for the ANU Centre for China in the World, and is ANU Press Editor for the Asia-Pacific Security Series. Before joining the ANU, Greg was a policy advisor in the Australian government, including in the strategic and international policy areas of the Department of Defence and the Australian Embassy in Bangkok. Wow, Greg, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Natalie. Greg, since it was launched in 2013, the Belt and Road Initiative has led to much greater economic integration between China and mainland Southeast Asia. What does this integration look like on the ground? Well, it takes many different forms. I think trade is the most obvious form, perhaps. Manufactured goods and raw materials going from Southeast Asian countries into China. But there's also now uh, investment flows which are becoming very important, particularly when they're associated with large infrastructure projects. So we've just seen, of course, the opening of the Lao China Railway, which could be quite a, a pivotal development in connective infrastructure for China and mainland Southeast Asia. We're also seeing other types of developments which are very striking if you encounter them up close, such as what are turning into kind of enclave cities in some parts of mainland Southeast Asia, and there are a few of those now in Laos, but also in Myanmar. So the enmeshment, the integration is taking many forms. And as you've said, as you've foreshadowed, it's not only the transport infrastructure and and other big ticket items like that, there's other types of uh, integration occurring too. I mean, for example, the kinds of uh, regional forums, which like the Lanchang Mekong Forum, which are exclusively Southeast Asian countries and China. So it is a very uh, multifarious kind of phenomenon. Okay, so let's talk a bit more about that. And you make that point in your journal article, I think, for Contemporary Southeast Asia on religion as a tool of influence, in which you make the point that the Belt and Road Initiative has always been about much more than the purely material, that it is accompanied and has always intended to be accompanied by cultural initiatives, for example, relating to religion. So could you tell us a bit more about how Buddhism is being used to, in your words, augment these links in the region? Yes, well, just to go back to the BRI, I mean, 
not that many official statements about what the BRI isn't um, is from China, but one of the few statements we have do mention five objectives, one of which is building people-to-people links. I got interested in the idea of religion being a form of pursuing these people-to-people links through, I guess, some just observation in Thailand. I noticed at one point Jack Ma was in Thailand and um, there's a great deal of interest in, in his visit. He was uh, you know, fated as a celebrity and there was a kind of interest in, in what Chinese people and Thai people have in common. This was one of the questions that was put to him and I thought that's kind of a curly question in some ways because Thailand being a very strong Buddhist monarchy and, Thailand and China being a communist state, what's, how's he going to answer that? And when he put the emphasis on Buddhism, I was, well, I was taken aback and I thought, well, in a way that's, that's genius because it really puts to one side all these questions of, of very different political systems, which, you know, Thailand and China at one point were in conflict um, about. So, yeah, but then, you know, on some trips around southern China, I just encountered some of the temples in Yunnan province, which were actually holding Buddhist forums and bringing in Buddhist clergy from the mainland Southeast Asian countries. And once I started to look at this, it became quite apparent that this was something that was occurring on quite a large scale. And uh, the way that it had started to unfold had, I guess you might say, the fingerprints of the Chinese Communist Party on it in the sense that a number of Chinese Communist Party affiliated think tanks had sort of decided that they needed to have these kinds of soft power initiatives to accompany the economic um, and infrastructural aspects of, of the Belt and Road. So once you start looking for these forms of engagement, well, there was quite a lot and surprising to find these in some ways because I think for a Westerner, they're not something that you would automatically encounter. You know, there's a lot that goes on in the global south that I think unless you're interested in these types of topics, it's going to be quite invisible. So tell us about how these religious initiatives in particular are being rolled out through the United Front Work Department. I mean, have you been able to find out any more information about how this department is resourcing the initiatives? For example, do we know what sort of money is behind them? Yeah, it seems to have been, there were two particular stages. One was, first of all, the overall elevation of the status and resourcing of United Front Work Group, which um, happened really not long after Xi Jinping took power. I think he took power in 2012, but like 2014, um, the UFWG had, uh, its head was now in the Politburo and they increased the staff by 40,000. But then later on, there was dissatisfaction with the way in which it was being administered. The, each religion in China has its own association, which is the tool by which the party controls religious practice. So for Buddhism, it's the Buddhist Association of China. And then it reported to another body called the State Administrative State Agency for Religious Administration. Now, under Xi Jinping, there was dissatisfaction with that SARA body, and it was all brought into the United Front Work Group around 2016-2017. So then the character of, of the Buddhist engagement seems to change, and that's where the 
goals of the BRI uh, are fused with the goals of Buddhist diplomacy, or to use the words of one of the BAC, Buddhist Association of China bureaucrats, was that Buddhism needs to shoulder the responsibilities of the BRI and spread the glory of culture. So, yeah, there's just a, a sudden move to make religion and particularly Buddhism Perform some work for the state. Mm, I think that's a really interesting analogy. This idea of Buddhism as a tool working on behalf of the state. I mean, would you say it's quite cynical for a communist party state to be rolling out these religious initiatives so strategically targeted in places like Thailand and Myanmar where Buddhism is dominant? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question. I guess if we're going to be hard-nosed about it, it does look quite Machiavellian that a party that really does not respect religion at one stage was determined to wipe religion out, but later on decided it would tolerate it as long as it was controlled, you know, but it was thought that it would eventually die out by itself. It is, there is a degree of, I guess, cynical instrumental use of religion that it's then get brought into play to soften China's image abroad. You know, all governments, of course, do what they need to do to further their interests. But I guess unlike public diplomacy for many other countries where, you know, what they espouse at home is also then what they're trying to extol abroad, this is a little bit different. And there is that contradiction there, which I think is a little disconcerting. At the same time, you know, I've since subsequently found out that through reading some of Wang Gang Wu's work that often people in government in China, there's been a traditional that they would not be religious people and that was seen as part of the responsible way for leaders and those in charge of the administration of the country to behave. And I just found when you look at the Chinese Communist Party forbidding its members to practice communism, but then talking up Buddhist engagement, one can't help but see that there's a kind of um, discrepancy there. So how has it been received in Southeast Asia? Is there sort of an acknowledgement that it's cynical but we'll take it anyway? I think there's more research that needs to be done on that. Some research, and, and look, you know, I'll be open here, I would like to have done more field work and perhaps done that kind of work. A lot of this was done through... Yeah, some field work, but perhaps not enough with the interviews. I think more could be done. But looking at the work of um, some other scholars, for example, those who looked at how Burmese people reacted when a tooth relic was, um, to explain that to your listeners, a purported relic of the actual Buddha is housed in China and was toured in Myanmar. And people in Myanmar did flock to see it. And... There was a degree of consonance there, a degree of connection, but at the same time, these researchers emphasise that a Burmese person does not see the, the Mahayana Buddhist temples that there are in Burma as the same as the Theravada Buddhists that they practice in. So there remains some degree of distance. Now, I'm not sure whether or not there would be cynicism about something like the Myanmar-China Buddhist centre that was opened in Naypyidaw. One would suspect there might be, given... What we've seen since the coup last year in Myanmar is a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment, and we know historically anti-Chinese sentiment 
has reared up from time to time. So these initiatives by China are certainly no panacea when there are other dynamics at play. But I think China works on many different approaches simultaneously, so they, I don't think they'd necessarily be discouraged by that. We see religion being rolled out in this way. Your research is focusing on Buddhism. We also see heritage being used in this way to roll out the Dalton Road Initiative or perhaps even damp and disquiet about the infrastructure aspects of the Belt and Road Initiative. Do you think the hard Belt and Road could have the success that it has had or the receptiveness it has had without the softer elements, without these elements of religion and heritage and other soft power initiatives? Yeah, look, I think to actually measure the contribution is quite difficult. I think you know, what we can say as an overall picture is particularly in mainland Southeast Asia, which I, I do think has, there are some differences, particularly with Indonesia, I, I would argue. But overall, what China's been able to do is what one Thai scholar, Jos Fantasombat, has called uh, is desecuritize their relationship. And I think that's happened for a number of reasons. One is there's no territorial disputes, which is a major help. But also China's been able to, particularly since they stopped trying to um, instigate revolution in the 1970s, when they gave up that approach, particularly with ties, there was real sort of reconciliation and a readiness to kind of accept China on its own terms. And they've managed to just kind of dampen disquiet. Well, over time, I think what's, what we're seeing building up, particularly with mainland Southeast Asia and China, is a kind of unstated what we would say in international relations, solidarist community of illiberalism and authoritarianism. There's, there's a quiet agreement that these countries are all comfortable because none of them are pushing a liberal agenda. And I think having these alternative communities with a subtle acknowledgement of the benefits of a kind of focus on harmony and order rather than a focus on accountability and rights is something which breezes, which lubricates the good relations between these countries. And I think Buddhism has kind of been helpful in that, in that regard, perhaps. I think it's no silver bullet to problems that arise from these dispossession, you know, land dispossession that occurs through building of the big infrastructure projects. But I do think as just one additional strand where it's not conflictual, where it is consensual, that this, in a sense, differentiates China-Southeast Asian relations or China-Mainland-Southeast Asian relations from those that Southeast Asian countries have with the West. I think it's a subtle difference, but it does play to what China wants to pursue, which is alternative forms of community. Now, some people talk about the resurrection of the tribute system and so forth. I think that's a big stretch, but it's well documented now that China often talks about community of common destiny. That's a phrase which is often combined with Felton Road and their shared Buddhist philosophy and religion. Let me ask you this. Could you envision China using Islam in the same way that they're using Buddhism? I think it's not as easy, but there is evidence that they have funded the building of some Zhanghe mosques in Indonesia. So they have done it. But I think with Buddhism, it's easier. And, and when we're talking about this engagement, it's happening at a lot of different levels of Chinese society because 
there are 100 million Buddhists in China, all over the country, and thousands of temples and monks and so forth, they can be encouraged to hold these kinds of Buddhist outreach conferences and forums um, because they get more respect and more resources from the state if they do so. But I think with Islam, it's a religion which the Chinese Communist Party has historically been more suspicious of, and I don't think it's as widely practised. So I don't think it is as readily turned to being a cultural resource, but I think some of it is has been occurring already, but I don't think on the scale of what's been happening with Buddhism that I can see. And of course, China's got the Uyghur ethnic minorities in Western China, and they are Muslim, and there might be some additional considerations about not wanting to push the Muslim slash Islam agenda too hard, given those internal problems. It's interesting how all these religion and heritage issues come together again. So before we wrap up, let me ask you just a couple of final questions. Um, Just taking a step back from Buddhism diplomacy, what other ways is mainland Southeast Asia integrating with China and Southern China in particular? Yeah, I'll talk here a little bit about some of my current research. I'm quite interested in these, how these enclave cities, how they've come to actually begun to be built. What is it about the interactions between China and mainland Southeast Asian countries, which is allowing this to happen? And I've been, I guess, examining the utility of looking at imperialism as a kind of process that occurs not necessarily with any intent to colonise or any particular view of an end state, but it is a process which occurs through expansion, expansion of through migration or investment and capital. It occurs when we have quite powerful, well-connected, well-resourced transnational business people able to do deals with local collaborators, and these deals aren't necessarily to the benefit of local people who are often dispossessed, but they benefit elites. You know, it pains me to say, but I think what we see in a lot of Southeast Asian governments is kind of like an imperialisable periphery in that there are individuals, and we know this from looking at things like the 1MDB scandal in Malaysia, which they're going to have to repay those that money that's lost, something like 2% of Malaysian GDP. Deals get done, and there is a lack of accountability often. And this is a process that I think worrying. It's a process which fits some of the, the way in which expansion, European expansion, has occurred in earlier periods of history. So this is getting into very controversial territory, but I think, you know, when I'm looking at what's happening with, for example, the industrial estate at a place called Shwekogo in eastern Karen State in Myanmar, you know, there's a deal between a transnational Chinese businessman, a guy called Shiru Gai, and the Karen Border Force commander. And I'm, you know, there's a deal there which is benefiting them both. But it's not a deal which is consistent with what the central Myanmar government actually approved originally, a very small set of luxury villas. Now this is turning into a 100-square-kilometre industrial park, which, you know, the numbers of people who might actually live here in the future, if this thing continues to develop, will be quite significant. So this is a form of integration through these types of processes which 
occurs because there is the, the capital and the willingness for certain people that there's not the strong strength of governance that ensures national interest. The processes of accountability are lacking. The Belt and Road Initiative has really only been around since 2013. So that's actually less than a decade. And it's quite remarkable how quickly it's become part of the discourse. How might we expect to see it change or develop in the next few years? Yeah, look, I think that there's been a slowing in the last couple of years during the pandemic, not a complete halt, because as we saw with the Lao China Rail, they were able to continue that very impressive engineering project regardless of COVID. So these projects will continue among some of the stronger Southeast Asian states now. There are different views about the BRI and its desirability. There are different views about the desirability of becoming ever more closely enmeshed in a Beijing-centric economic system. And I think what we see is that a number of the countries are exhibiting what regional specialists tend to call a balancing behaviour. They're trying to hedge, they're trying to make sure that if they accept China's initiatives and they accept from, some from Japan as well, and now the United States is displaying an, an interest in trying to get back into the game of, um, of sponsoring infrastructure, though it's not so easy when you don't really get into state-led infrastructure investment very much. But, yes, yeah, so the Southeast Asian states, even Laos, it can be argued, will set China, but at the same time they would like to think that they have other partners as well. So I think every people who follow Southeast Asia will be very familiar with that dynamic. I think that's what we'll continue to see with the BRI, We'll see, particularly in mainland Southeast Asia, the strengthening of these north-south corridors, economic corridors. But I think countries like Thailand that have had themselves aspirations at various times to be a central hub, well, they'll try and build east-west axes as well. So Thailand's been quite careful about how fast it's going with linking up Singapore to Kunming rail link. It's not in a hurry to link a rail line which has just finished in VNTM. They're, they're taking their time about it. And I think, you know, Indonesia is also very similar with BRI projects. There are domestic conditions in all of the Southeast Asian countries which dictate that they'll progress differently with the BRI. But I think the BRI is going to be around. People talk about China's economic growth slowing and so forth. But I think the BRI will continue and there are a lot more projects which are being proposed, many more projects being proposed to improve integration and transport connectivity. Many, many that China has continued to propose to Myanmar, for example, you know, turning the Irrawaddy River into a more of a navigable water stream and so forth, more rail lines, more roads and so forth. So we'll continue to see, I think, interest in that. China has the capital to do things quite quickly once they're given the green light. But at the same time, I think Southeast Asian countries are trying to exercise some degree of autonomy at the same time, though, as I pointed out earlier, I think at times some decisions aren't necessarily made through very transparent or accountable processes. Greg, it's an absolutely fascinating area of research and thanks to scholars like you paying attention to things like Buddhism diplomacy and certainly we'll keep an eye out on your future research to see what other things catch your attention as the Belt and Road Initiative continues to roll out. 
Thank you so much for joining us on CX Stories. A real pleasure, Natalie. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to CX Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.